is Bad Boys and Beyond with your hosts, Mike Payton and Keith Black Trudeau. The game's over and the Pistons have won the world championship. Welcome back to Bad Boys and Beyond. We are your hosts, Mike Payton and Keith Black Trudeau. We are coming to you a little late this week because uh, one of the co-hosts, myself, decided to make the stress of the Lions uh, career and uh, it has just been insane this week and we just were not able to record on our normal Wednesday. So we are bringing it to you here on Friday. Um, My my promise on Twitter was to have this ready for you by your your, uh, drive home, which for some reason, everybody seems to think everyone gets off at five o'clock. I don't know. Is that true? Is that really even a thing anymore? I don't know. I've been working early morning shifts slash graveyard shifts my entire life. So I'm Same. the wrong person to ask about the, the normal work mute schedule. Yeah. I, I never really got when I was in retail and stuff. I never I don't recall ever getting out at five o'clock. But uh, anyhow, uh, yes, we were good. We're going to drop that uh, uh, for you. As soon as we get done editing and recording, this will be in your uh, whatever app that you use to listen to this fine program um how about them lines though keith yeah yeah going to kansas city uh for the the traditional uh now traditional thursday night opening kickoff game in the nfl and actually winning i don't care who wasn't available for kansas city there have been plenty of lions games in my life where they were missing key players mm-hmm. Uh, if there's one thing I've learned about the NFL, a win is a win and a loss is a loss. And you, you don't you know, nitpick or throw away either of those. So, you know, the, the fact that they went to Kansas city, turned it into a, a, a street fight and came out and won against Patrick Mahomes, who's everyone has anointed the, the most gifted QB of all time. <laughs> that's, that's really making a statement. Now they got to follow that up and, you know, not fall on their faces at home next week, <laughs> but you know, if it, I, I'm looking forward to a productive uh, Lions football season, like I haven't seen in decades, and I'm sure a lot of other people are as well. Yes, please, 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 do not fall on your face next week. Just go out and win another one. Just keep winning until we tell you to stop, which will be never. Uh, so. Yes, very much looking forward to the rest of the season. The only thing that sucks is that, you know, the thing I like about basketball is when the season's going, you could get like four, maybe five games in a week, you know. Uh, with the Lions, it's like now I have to wait 10 days. <laughs> yeah, but that, the, it's the thing, though. Uh, Lions fans get to savor this one for the next 10 days. That's true. That's true. Um, yeah, and I will, save, I will definitely savor it. The other thing I've been savoring – uh, is the latest episode of Winning Time, which to me, and I'm sorry, guys, if you, you go watch this damn show because if this gets canceled because of all of you, I will never forgive any of you. Uh, go watch this show. It needs numbers. They have not been renewed yet. It hasn't been canceled either, but it has not been renewed for a third season yet. People need to watch this. But this was my favorite episode by far. And there was barely any basketball in it. It was just, really 
I mean, everybody was like, uh, showed up that week and said, let's all try to win Emmys. I mean, it was that good. And I think Adrian Brody uh, blew them all away. The the most, the single most convincing turn to the dark side ever put to film. I will stand on that. Uh, there there are so many, uh, so many great moments from that last uh, episode of Winning Time, which by the way, Jeannie Buss has now taken to Twitter to promote the series. If you want to see how that, <laughs> that has turned on its head. Um, so yeah, it, it starts out, which the thing that we all knew was coming was Paul Westhead's uh, ego gets the best of him. And it, it finally takes his own daughter to tell him, look, dad, you're going to get fired today. And it, it finally hits him that, oh my God, I might actually get fired. And then he goes in and he's, he's still taking the wrong lessons away from this. Uh, he goes up to magic after magic has, has just gotten done chewing out the owner of the team, Jerry bus for not taking him seriously. When he told him to do something about the coaching situation, uh, he walks by magic and, and Paul Weston has the absolute gall to tell magic that he, he still believes in him. Like, 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 a, like a disapproving parent. <laughs> and it, it just summarizes uh, kind of the disconnect uh, of Paul, West, uh, Paul Westhead's uh, Lakers career. But that's not even the highlight of the episode. The highlight no. is what we've all come to realize is the first two seasons of Winning Time, for all their larger-than-life personas, uh, you know, the, the Jerry Buss, Magic Johnson, Kareem Abdul-Jabbar. It's really been the origin story for Pat Riley, who at the beginning of this series goes from a mid-30s retiree uh, with no clue what he wants to do with the rest of his life. Uh, he decides just, he just wants to get his foot back in the, the NBA door again. Uh, he, he makes an audition tape to be Chick, Chick Hearn, uh, the play-by-play guy for the Lakers, uh, his, his color commentary sidekick. Uh, Chick doesn't take him seriously. He emasculates him at every opportunity, uh, tells him he has an effeminate voice. And uh, Pat Riley, simply because there's a coaching uh, situation change, he gets pulled into the, uh, onto the bench simply because they need somebody to be an assistant. And over the next two years, he supports uh, Paul Westhead uh, to, a, to a very good extent. And it's very clear that, that coaching agrees with him, that, that he has very good instincts for this job. And when Westhead finally does get canned and Pat Riley gets the opportunity, it's clear that even Jerry Buss doesn't believe in him because he refuses to go, at the, to go onto the podium at the press conference and say, this is my head coach, which is something that actually happened. It's, it's this calamity where he tries to imply that both Jerry West and, Paul West, and uh, Pat Riley are co, like, co-assistant coaches which is just a ridiculous concept in the world of basketball and it gets laughed at. And so the players kind of treat Pat Riley, even though they like him, they they don't really respect him. He's the substitute teacher because he has no authority. And so we conclude at the end of the episode, maybe the one of the greatest two minute sequences I've ever seen on in television where uh, Jerry Buss has had enough of this. He he finally gives Pat Riley the authority to go after um the head coaching job and, and really coach the team. And he just lays air out every single important member of the LA Lakers in this great two minute rant about how, you know, he goes to Michael Cooper. He says, why are you blaming everybody else? You're not even a star. You're a role player. Why do you think you're a star? Why are you complaining about anybody? He goes to Norm Nixon. Uh, you haven't played hard since the all-star break. 
and he's just calling everybody out. And I think the most important thing is though, he calls out uh, Kareem for not playing hard and he calls out magic uh, for being a coward essentially in front of the entire locker room. And that has been Pat Riley's uh, shtick his entire uh, life in the NBA as an executive is that he is, was never afraid to call out the stars of his team. And because of that, all of the, all of the other guys fell in line because if, if, Pat Riley has the balls to call Magic Johnson a coward. Um, no one else is going to question his authority. So that, and it just, it's like he snaps and he turns into Darth Vader in this great sequence and he, he starts slicking his hair back and you see him finally become the Pat Riley that we all know. It's just a masterpiece of, of uh, filmmaking really just amazing writing just like and i don't know if you noticed but like throughout the episode his hair gets progressively more slicked back it's like it's a little bit and then it's a little more and then by the end it's all the way and when he goes to magic and he says i'm not fucking scared of you and like oh my god i, I just like i had goosebumps in that moment or the or the or the Kareem thing. He's like, people are asking when you're going to retire. I say it was two years ago. Two months like, ago, yeah. Two months was, ago, yeah. Basically, when they fired Paul Westhead, is he he's telling him he quit on the team because the coach that was running all the plays through him got fired. Yeah. Oh, man, but, I can't wait. Yeah, can't I wait. just want to add one more thing. Um, yeah. You mentioned that the show might not get renewed. I, I think there will be just enough pressure to get it renewed for another season. Uh, but Adrian Brody, who has clearly established himself as the star of this series in, in my mind, not that he wasn't already a, a well, well-known, well-renowned actor. Uh, Academy Award winner. Yep. So this, this is the book I'm, I'm holding it up. Like we're on video, even though we're not, uh, <laughs> this is the book showtime. This is, uh, by Jeff Perlman. I highly recommend it. Uh, this is the book that winning time was based off of. Uh, there's so many more crazy stories in here that they're going to show on HBO. I promise you. Because a lot of the craziest stuff is probably too ridiculous for them to put in, put in an episode. But I want to follow it up. When the show does conclude, whenever that happens, uh, we need this right here. Uh, oh, yeah. This is the book Blood in the Garden. Uh, it's a very new book by Chris Herring. It chronicles the entire story of the 1990s uh, New York Knicks, which flew ever close to the sun but never quite won a championship. And if you notice the man right in the middle of the picture on the book, it is Pat Riley, because as soon as he leaves the Lakers, Pat Riley goes to the Knicks and he becomes, you know, the boss that he is today. And even when he leaves from the Knicks to the Heat, he's still involved in the book through the Knicks-Heat rivalry. So I think it is just a perfect transition uh, if HBO wants to do a Blood in the Garden spinoff uh, once winning time is over. I think that would be uh, unbelievable. Uh, you, you, from, from the Lakers to the, to the Knicks, to the, to the Miami heat, you can call it, I don't know, like the, the, the infinity moose trilogy or something. I don't know. They're just, <laughs> I don't know. I, it probably won't happen because I want this too much to happen, but man, how great would that be if we, if we had, you know, years and years of, of Adrian Brody playing Pat Riley, uh, taking us through the history of the NBA. I, I would love it. I would, I would absolutely love it. And uh, the, the last thing we'll say about the show, and then we'll move on, we'll get to our main topic. Jeff Perlman, who actually wrote the book Showtime, was on this episode uh, playing a reporter. Um, shout out to Jeff, man. He came he came to me a couple weeks ago, and he, was, he did a story 
uh, on his Substack about beat writers uh, in America, essentially. And he talked to like 20 people and he included me into that article. And I just feel so unbelievably honored by that. And uh, thank you, Jeff, if you're listening, I'm sure you're not. But if you are, thank you so much for including. And we will keep fighting the good fight. We're going to get this show renewed uh, for a third season. And I I hope it does. Um, But in, in terms of the blood in the garden thing, I would love to see it, but it seems like, uh, the USFL might be the next, might be the next uh, move there. So, we'll, uh, at least that's what Perlman was talking about the other day. His book on the USFL has been optioned, so there might be a movie or TV show based off of. And I'm talking the original USFL, right. the one, the one that Trump killed, not not the one that's existing right now. But anyways, today we have come to here to talk about the man in the mask, and I'm not talking about the Phantom of the Opera or Mick Foley. I'm talking about Richard Rip Hamilton, uh, Pistons legend, NBA champion. Let's go all the way back to the beginning. Keith, this man was a phenom at UConn. Yeah, so, and I actually want to go back uh, a little further to his high school days. Uh, Rip Hamilton, one of the best high school players in the country, uh, played his high school ball in Coatesville, Pennsylvania. Same state as, as Kobe Bryant was when he was playing in, in Philly. And there's this, there's a little anecdote that Rip Hamilton likes to tell that really shapes the story of the rest of his basketball playing life, which is he goes to this, uh, this all-star camp and he's marveling around at, at all of these amazing athletes at the camp. And his first impression was, wow, they're all, as athletic or more so than me, I guess we're all going to the NBA and a a counselor sits them all down and tells them that, you know, maybe one or two of, or maybe three of them might make the NBA someday. And it it hits Richard Hamilton that I need to set myself apart. I need to do something different. So he he goes about uh, specializing in what was a lost art, even in the mid nineties, which was the, the mid range game and coming off of screens and playing without the ball because it was becoming the basketball was becoming more of a isolation heavy world. And so he decided to, you know, zig while everyone else was zagging and and it worked out to great effect. He was a second team all American and he goes to UConn and UConn having just come off of, you know, featuring Ray Allen, there were, they they certainly weren't a, and nobody, but they were not anywhere near the UConn that we know today. Uh, They, they were not champions. They had never even been to a final four. Uh, when, when they recruited Rich Hamilton, they were just a, a, a one of those really good bass. They were like Gonzaga. They were like one of those really good basketball schools. They just could never get it done in the tournament. And Rip is a starter from day one, uh, just under 16 points a game. Uh, not a, ver- not a very efficient 16 points, but he's a starter. He gets those volume shots. He was uh, all big East as a freshman excuse me, he was all Big East freshman, uh, not all Big East. Uh, but he, he actually shot better from three than he did from two, which was kind of interesting. He had, he had a lot of problems finishing around the rim. But in his sophomore season in 98 is really when you see him uh, evolve into the player that he would continue to be for the, re- the rest of his career. Uh, averaged 21.5 points per game on pretty decent efficiency. He was Big East Player of the Year, second team All-American. Uh, he his 
coming out party on the national stage was the game winner uh, that he hit against Washington in the Sweet 16, where it was off of a rebound, uh, ironically, not, not the kind of play you expect Richard Hamilton to beat you on. Uh, but he, he got a loose ball, uh, a rebound with about a second left. Uh, I want to say just below the free throw line, he caught it. And then he, in one swift motion, puts, puts it back up, switches an eight-footer, uh, wins the game for UConn. Uh, he, now, the end of the story is he was horrible in the, in the Elite Eight in the loss to North Carolina. He only shoots five for 21. Uh, but with the knowledge that he was going to stay in college for at least another year, he was looked at as one of the, the big NBA prospects uh, for 1999. All right. Well, then the next thing uh, after that is he is going to stay in college and he's going to lead UConn to a national championship. Yeah. So if you look at his statistics, they aren't honestly all that different from his junior season, exact same scoring average, 21 and a half points. Uh, his efficiency goes up just a little bit, uh, but, but the big difference is UConn finishes the regular season 28-2. Uh, Rip Hamilton, for the second straight year, is Big East Player of the Year, uh, but, but UConn themselves is finishes third in the country uh, during the regular season. Uh, they get a number one seed in the NCAA tournament. Uh, Rip Hamilton is named uh, first-team All-American that season, so he is recognized as one of the heavy hitters in college basketball. But I think the, the tournament is really when you see where Rip, Rip's value comes from, because in any in any league, I don't care which league you're in, high school, college, NBA, the defense gets tighter uh, when elimination time comes around, and it is a lot harder to score. And the way that Rip Hamilton gets his points, uh, it, it's almost like he gets better uh, during the postseason because he can maintain his efficiency uh, and his scoring average, his volume shooting. And that's kind of what happened. He actually gets better during the tournament. He averages uh, 23.5 uh, points a game, shoots 51% during UConn's uh, initial tournament run. And that gets them to the tournament championship game, which I'm going to set the stage. Nobody gave them a shot. I remember this vividly. Nobody gave UConn a shot to beat Duke in the finals. Duke that season was one of the dominant college basketball teams of all time. Uh, they were uh, 37 and one going into that game with their one loss being to Cincinnati in a, in a tournament game that like a preseason tournament game. I think it was Alaska. Uh, that team was absolutely dominant. They had led by Shane Battier uh, and Elton Brand and, and Trajan Langdon, who was a college legend. Everyone thought they were just going to roll right over UConn. And the problem was that that game turned into a slugfest. Uh, UConn slowed the game down. They played physical. Uh, they, they didn't let Duke get out and run into the open floor. And the big difference in that game was Rip Hamilton. Uh, be, because Rip Hamilton uh, managed 27 points on pretty good efficiency in that uh, national title game against Duke. And he was the one guy that, really on either team that really wasn't being disrupted by, by the physical nature of that game. And it earned him, not only did it earn UConn the national championship, but it earned him uh, most outstanding player of the incident of the uh, final four. And it, that was UConn's not only their first trip to the final four, but that was UConn's first national championship. And they've kind of parlayed that into being a, an absolute powerhouse ever since then. And uh, he actually got inducted into the College Basketball Hall of Fame last year because of uh, everything he did at UConn. So 
it's a it's a big honor. It's definitely a memorable moment in college basketball history to knock off that Duke team. Yeah, well deserved. He certainly has the resume for it. Uh, then he's going to enter into the NBA draft after that, where he will be the uh, seventh pick by the Washington Wizards. Keith, we did the 1999 redraft back in uh, well, it was a while ago. Do you remember uh, where we took him and uh, what team he wound up on? How didn't he go fourth or fifth? He went fifth. Yes, I, I don't remember the. T- I remember he went earlier than he did in in real life, but I couldn't remember exactly what when it was he went fifth to the raptors yeah so and by the way 1999 one of the best draft classes we have ever covered Uh, this is this is definitely not a uh both 98 99 were were really really good draft classes and the fact that he was in retrospect one of the top five players in that draft class and in actuality he dropped a seventh i think is is interesting because it speaks volumes about what the nba thought of Richard Hamilton. The man had just uh, led UConn to an NCAA title, clearly their most important player. And he drops to seventh in, in the draft because he wasn't, he, I mean, he was tall. He was six, 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 seven, but he, he was pretty skinny. Uh, there were doubts about his durability. He didn't have NBA three point range. He just didn't. Uh, he was a mid range specialist in a league where that was kind of uh, vanishing. And yeah, despite all that, he goes to the Raptors or the uh, the Wizards at with the seventh pick, and he really doesn't play a whole lot his rookie season. No, not I mean, at all. Well, the Wizards have this guy by the name of Mitch Richmond, who was a Hall of Fame basketball player, who was starting over him. So I, I understand why he didn't play a whole lot. Uh, but at the same time, maybe they should have looked to move on to, from Mitch Richmond because that team was going nowhere. So he, he was kind of stuck between a rock and a hard place. He doesn't have a good rookie season. He only averages nine points off the bench. He is not even considered for either of the all-rookie teams, uh, despite being a top-ten pick. It was kind of a wasted season for Rip. Yeah, season's kind of – when you look at the totality of his career, that season's like a blip on the radar. Like, it's yep. he's after that – I mean, he immediately becomes uh, a starter the next year, at least for, you know, half the season, and he's and averaging 18 a game. Yeah, and that's all almost by accident, right? Because Mitch Richmond is still there the next season, but he gets hurt. And, you know, but Corey Alexander is there. He's another uh, young player that they wanted to develop. But they're both two guards. So <laughs> uh, Rip Hamilton is playing a lot of small forward his second season. Not not the whole season, but they're, they're just trying to force him into the lineup, basically. And he's playing well. I mean, his, his scoring average doubles from 9 to 18 points. Uh, but he's still not terribly efficient. His, his defense is still not great, and the Wizards are still absolutely terrible. In fact, they're so terrible, they wound up with the number one pick that season. So it's not like uh, he, he really had a coming out party. It's just he got more minutes and he scored more points. Now, I do, I do want to mention one thing. Uh, he does have his, his very first 40-point game uh, against the Pistons. Uh, I want to say in December or January uh, is the very first time he breaks the 40 point mark uh, against Jerry Stackhouse and the Pistons, which I thought was ironic. Uh, it, the Wizards do win that game. Uh, but I, I do remember Rip Hamilton just uh, tearing into the Pistons. And it, it's the very first time that he looked like, like college Rip Hamilton. Well, an interesting thing is going to happen. 
in his time with the Wizards. You might remember he's going to have a, a extremely famous teammate because Michael Jordan comes out of retirement, shocks everybody, and joins the Wizards. And now he's kind of playing Rip's position. Yeah, so well, I, I guess the, the, the fortunate thing with Michael Jordan, uh, who unretired prior to Rip Hamilton's third season, he, you know, he was pushing 40. He didn't have the foot speed really to keep up with twos anymore. So he was more of a natural small forward with the Wizards anyway. But that didn't make it much easier on him. I'm sure he preferred to play the two and, and post up smaller guards. But the combination actually worked. Uh, the numbers don't say it, but that's because that Jordan was in, Jordan got injured for a large part of the season. And then Rick Hamilton uh, got injured for a large part of the season. And the Wizards were very bad. Uh, when they were missing either of them. But when they played together uh, as a duo, the, the Wizards really had, were winning at a playoff pace. They should have been in the playoffs uh, the, in 2002, if not, not for the injuries. It was just a thing that happened. Uh, the, the only real memory of Rip and Jordan together is when Jordan hits the game winner in Cleveland and he's pumping his fist and you can see Rip Hamilton like his mini-me like right behind him pumping his fist at the same time, like he had hit the game winner. It was kind of kind of funny to look at. But I, I think what led to Rip Hamilton getting traded out of Washington was I, I think Jordan did want uh, to play with a bigger, stronger, more physical wing uh, that could guard uh, small forwards when necessary. I, I don't think he had any problem with Rip Hamilton. I just think he, he would prefer to play with a more of a 2-3 type instead of a just a pure shooting guard. Well, it just so happens that Detroit has a guy like that. And uh, the Wizards are going to trade Hamilton along with Bobby Simmons and Hubert Davis. I don't even remember Hubert playing for the Pistons, but apparently he did. Uh, for Jerry Stackhouse, uh, Mr. Flop himself, Brian Cardinal, and some guy named Rocco Varda. Yeah, Ro Rocco could play a little bit. I mean, he had a cup of coffee in the NBA. He wasn't completely useless, but... Um, yeah, he wasn't the headliner of the deal by, by any stretch. Uh, do, you, do you remember the date that Rip Hamilton got traded for Jerry Stackhouse? Because I do. I, I don't. <laughs> it was September 11th, 2002. Oh, um, okay. Yeah. I've I never going to say 2001 there for a second. I was like, oh, crap. No wonder I don't no, know. No. Um, no, that was the date that uh, the, the Lions benched uh, Charlie Batch, if you recall. Um yeah, I, I have never forgotten that day either. You know, the interesting thing about that is uh, Bob Bob Wojnarowski, uh of the Free Press posted the uh, Detroit Free Press uh, front page of that the other day uh, of Charlie B Batches getting benched. Um, I, I guess I didn't notice. Maybe if I would have looked in the corner, it would have said something about Rip Hamilton getting traded. But, but they did a whole spread on Charlie Batch getting benched. It was... Well, they were big disappointment. Yeah. Um, so it, it, what's interesting is is how this was received locally. Uh, and, and I touched on this, uh, you know, a couple of weeks ago, but uh, Jerry Stackhouse had really won over the city of Detroit with uh, how he had played the season before. Uh, he stopped being so much of a volume shooter. Uh, started being more of a playmaker for others, uh, played a little bit better on defense. Uh, the 
the, the city had really fallen in love with Jerry Stackhouse for his leadership role. And the fact that Joe Dumars was not content to sit on the team that he had, he wanted, I think he had seen a team that had peaked and he wanted to move forward instead of staying pat. So he, he trades for Rip Hamilton and locally it is very much seen as a one step back, two steps forward move that Rip Hamilton was not as good as Jerry Stackhouse, but he was younger, had a cheaper contract and maybe could evolve into, into a better player, but he wasn't, no one thought he was a better player at the time. Nobody did. Uh, Jerry Stackhouse had made a couple of all-star games at that point in his career. Rip Hamilton was, was still a guy in his rookie deal. That well, Stackhouse is, come, is pretty, not too far off from his 28 points a game season right. too. So yeah, I could see why people would think that. So it really, I don't, I don't want to say it was super negative because Rip had already established that he had value in the NBA. It was that it felt like uh, locally it was being treated like they traded a star for a role player. And it honestly didn't help in the very first game uh, because and I'll never forget this game because it, it, this was the Pistons debut of both uh, Rip Hamilton and uh, Chauncey Billups, uh, the home opener against the Knicks. And they played so poorly that they were both benched in the fourth quarter. They did not play a minute. Uh, Rip Hamilton had actually scored uh, 22 points in the first three quarters, but he did so on pretty poor efficiency and his defense wasn't great. And Rick Carlisle had just seen enough of both of them. So he, he puts in Chucky Atkins and John Barry and they, they go on a major fourth quarter run. The Pistons go into the fourth quarter down five. They went by nine. Uh, it was just domination by the, by the Pistons bench, but that was kind of uh, uh, Rip Hamilton's, you know, story for his Pistons career is he was, he was productive, but he was always overshadowed by somebody else. And now how, it, how his uh, 2000 C, 2003 season plays out. Uh, his shot attempts went down. His shot quality went up a little bit. He averages just under 20 points a game again, a little bit less than Washington, but not, you know, really noticeable. But once again, you see his value uh, in the postseason when things really start to slow down, when things really start to matter. Uh, if everyone recalls, the Pistons had, had the number one seed in the playoffs in 2003. They found themselves in a massive dogfight with Orlando and Tracy McGrady at the peak of his powers. Uh, Rip Hamilton, they, they drop game one. McGrady goes crazy. Rip Hamilton comes back. He gives the Pistons 30 in game two. They win. And Rip Hamilton is just miserable in games three and four in Orlando. He shoots a combined nine for 33. They lose both games. They go down three games to one. And how the story is, is commonly told is Rip Han or, uh, Rick Carlisle makes the switch to Tayshaun Prince to guard Tracy McGrady. It works out. Uh, Chauncey Billups uh, comes through with some legendary uh, scoring performances. Uh, but what's lost in all that is uh, Rip, Rip Hamilton wakes up. Rip Hamilton... Uh, Scores 24 points in game five, uh, adds 22 more in game six, and adds an, another efficient 22 in game seven. Uh, it, on, and he shoots 52% uh, over those three games, games five, six, and seven. And he's as big a reason why the Pistons come back from 3-1 to win that series as anybody, but no one, ever, no one talks about it because, you know, there's nothing sexy about the, the, the guy that's scoring 22 points on mid-range jumpers on, on excellent efficiency. 
but he was a huge part of them coming back and winning that series. And, you know, for the, for the rest of Rip Hamilton's first playoff experience, it's, it's just as good. Uh, uh, against uh, Philadelphia, uh, he averages, what, 23 and a half points a game in that series. And that's a series where, where Billups barely plays because he, he sprains his ankle on Eric Snow's uh, foot <clears throat> intentionally. Um, he, he, go, he comes back. He's leading the team in scoring in that, in that playoff series without Billups. But only thing, the only thing people remember from that series is that Billups, you know, comes in uh, game six. He plays on one good foot and, you know, dominates the overtime and the Pistons close out the series. Never mind that Rip was their leading scorer the entire time. Phillips is the guy that gets the, the praise. And, you know, in the conference finals, even though they get swept, Rip is really the guy that shows up, uh, shoots pretty well, averages 22 points a game. It's just not nearly enough, and they get swept out of the playoffs. And, you know, that's that's Rip Hamilton's first postseason, and and I'm going to copy-paste for a lot of the rest of the, the time we talk about him because most of his playoffs were very, very good, uh, but he was always overshadowed by, some, by someone else that did something else spectacular on his team. Well, something interesting is going to happen the next year. Uh, Rip is going to do this weird thing where he steps on a rake and it breaks his nose like Sideshow <laughs> Bob, and then he steps on another rake and it breaks his nose again. Yeah. Uh, he breaks his nose twice in one in one year. Uh, pretty crazy. And because of that, he requires some surgery, and he now has to wear a mask. Okay. And, so, oh, I'm sorry. Go on. No, go ahead. No, so how I work, how I remember it being explained at the time was, uh, Rip Hamilton broke his nose, and yeah, you know, like you said, a couple of times, and then the second time, uh, the surgeons did something more cosmetic, which is what they would do for like a movie star or something, or or just a regular person with a lot of money, which is they remove cartilage from the nose uh, to reduce the swelling, and you know your nose looks as good as new but it's not protected by that cartilage anymore. So when they did that for Rip Hamilton, and that's why so many athletes have, you know, ugly looking noses is because they don't do that because the cartilage is what protects your nose. So when they did that with Rip, uh, he was basically told if you, if you suffer another, um, you know, contusion to your nose again, you're going to have to retire uh, because your, your nose is just going to explode. So you cannot afford to break your nose again and play basketball. So that's why he starts donning the mask and he never really takes it off because the, he, his nose has now become the most protected part of his body. And that's yeah. Go ahead. Well, I was just going to say, and then it, I mean, it becomes more of, it becomes like a staple. It becomes a, a prop sort of like oh, Cliff, yeah. Cliff Robinson's like, headband. Or, yeah, no, it's yeah. basically battle armor for him. It becomes something yeah. even cooler. Like this isn't an accessory. It's it's an accessory, yeah, but it's also like battle armor. And you know, I I started to hear people complain about it because yeah, it's an unfair advantage. Okay, well, if it's, if it's such an advantage, you play with a mask on. You see how you you tell me how it feels to play NBA basketball with a mask on. Like Rip Hamilton had to learn how to play with that thing. It, it's not something. And there were times at moments in his career where he got he got so frustrated with it, he just threw the thing off and kept playing and risk his career because the, you know, playing with anything covering your face is not easy. Uh, especially when you're playing with the greatest athletes on earth. So that that's the, 
the highlight of, of Rip's 2004 regular season, but I, I want to reiterate that this is when the Pistons fire Rick Carlisle and bring in Larry Brown. And Larry Brown has a very different way of using Rip than Rick Carlisle did. Rick Carlisle wanted him more as a spot-up shooter. Uh, he ran some curls for him, but he wanted him more as a spot-up shooter and more of a uh, occasionally a post-up player against smaller guards. Uh, Larry Brown was old school. He wanted to use him like Reggie Miller. He wanted him coming around screens. He wanted him uh, running guys on defense. He wanted him, uh, you know, getting out of transition. And so Rip, Hamil Rip Hamilton, even though his uh, scoring remains uh, roughly the same, the way he starts getting those points changes. And his efficiency goes up, not a lot, but a little bit. He's averaging, he's getting fewer shots, but he's, he's shooting a bit better percentage from two especially in his, because he's getting more layups. He's getting more shots at the rim. Uh, but, but all the same, once again, and I'm going to go through his 2004 uh, postseason in detail because I think it deserves to, uh, because he never gets any credit for this. So in the, in the first round against Milwaukee, he's averaging over 28 po 20 points a game, shooting almost 50% from the floor against Michael Red and the Bucks. Not only that, he's making Red, Michael Wright chase him on defense. He's wearing him out. Uh, in the Nets in round two, the team that swept him the year before, he averages almost 21 points a game in an excruciatingly low-scoring series. Uh, most notable, he hits uh, – I'm sure people would remember this. It was the biggest shot of the playoffs. Yeah. I'm not counting the Billups half-court thing because they lost the game anyway. Uh, but with Jason Kidd basically hanging all over him, uh, and the Pistons up, I think, one or two points with time running out on the shot clock with less than a minute left. Uh, uh, Jason Kidd is just basically in Rip's jersey, and Rip takes a baseline, shoots over him after a pump fake, and hits the shot, and that basically wins the game for the Pistons, uh, sends them back home for game seven, uh, which they win easily. And then the one, the one Rip Hamilton part that everyone remembers is his matchup with Reggie Miller in the conference finals. Uh, Reggie granted much older than Rip Hamilton, uh, but still a very good player. And Rip just takes his legs out. Uh, R Reggie Miller is not young enough anymore to guard Rip Hamilton uh, around the same screens that he used to wear people out running around for during the nineties. And Rip Hamilton just owns that series. It's one of the lowest scoring series in, in modern playoff history. And Rip Hamilton still manages to average almost 24 points a game, shoots almost 47% from the floor, which is, if you look at the box scores of that game, that is insane uh, that he could maintain that type of efficiency uh, with all the defense that was being played. And Reggie Miller, uh, he, he struggles. He's averaging just nine points, uh, shoots just 38%. I, I think Rip Hamilton's domination of Reggie Miller in that series is what got them to the finals. As much as anything, you know, Rashid guaranteed or how many block shots Ben Wallace had uh, or, or the big cl uh, clincher by Tayshaun Prince, that jumper, uh, Rip Hamilton uh, was the biggest reason why the Pistons beat the Pacers in the playoffs in 2004, uh, at least on offense. So we, we go to the 2004 finals and yeah. A lot of people look at this as they see Chauncey Billups, who deservedly won finals MVP. Uh, Rip Hamilton still led the team in scoring, by the way, 21 a game. But his efficiency was dropped significantly because, you know, Kobe Bryant 
uh, took it as a personal challenge to keep his numbers down. And he did, uh, you know, Rip, Rip got his points, but he didn't get them uh, as easily as he had the previous three rounds. But what Rip did do was he forced Kobe to guard him. And, you know, Kobe, just like everybody else does not enjoy, did not enjoy running around screens all the time to chase Rip Hamilton. And I, I think that took a lot of his, uh, I think that really took his legs out towards the, the, the latter part of the finals where a lot of his jumpers were just falling short. I, I think that he had a lot of tired legs from, from watching Rip run him all over the place. Uh, the, Rip had one great game in game three, uh, but for the most part, it was Chauncey's series. Uh, but I just want to mention all these things because Bill is one finals MVP. And Rip Hamilton, I don't know if that this has ever happened. I don't know if we'll ever see it again where a player that never leads his team in scoring in any of the four playoff rounds does not win finals MVP. <laughs> uh, for, for a guy to lead his, score, his team in scoring for four playoff rounds and, and lead them to a championship and not win finals MVP, I get it. But at the same time, I, I think he deserves way more recognition than what he got. Yeah, I remember watching the finals and thinking that he – I mean, I'm not just saying this now, but I remember watching the finals thinking that he was going to win. I mean, I was a little bit surprised when Chauncey won. Like, maybe I shouldn't have been, but I was a little bit surprised. I thought it was going to be Rip, or I thought it was going to be Ben Wallace because of how he, you know, I mean, Shaq got his numbers because Shaq gets yeah. his numbers. But but Wallace definitely prevented Shaq from getting better numbers. I mean, he had, like, he was near dominant against him, as dominant as you can be against Shaq. So I thought I thought Ben Wallace or Rip was going to win it, and then you know, but Chauncey had a hell of a series and definitely deserved it. But I yeah. I just I thought it should was going to go the other way. I, I think everyone just saw Chauncey Billups um, running circles around Gary Payton, and that was kind of the big offensive mismatch that the Pistons had in that series. And generally, you give the the trophy to the the guy that's the biggest mismatch. Um, it, not always Iguodala has won it before, but. Uh, it's just one of those things. Uh, now, 2005, Rip Hamilton, he's expected to be move into the All-Star. Like a lot of the Pistons, everyone was expecting uh, Chauncey and Rip to make their first All-Star games. Um, the, the brawl uh, on, a, on November 19th uh, kind of set them back. Um, they all kind of had down years, even though they, they replicated their win total from the year before. Uh, but Rip once again shows up in the playoffs, tortures the, the Sixers, shoots uh, 51% from the floor, averages 21 and a half points a game. Uh, he has a, gets a rematch with Reggie Miller, uh, averages almost 19 points a game. It's the very first playoff series where Rip Hamilton does not lead his team in scoring in, in, in his third year. Uh, but he bounces right back, uh, almost 24 points a game uh, against the the Shaq and Dwayne Wade Miami Heat. Shoots 40, 47% from the floor in that series. And I, I, oh, not only that, he's developing as a playmaker now. He's averaging, uh, he averaged six assists in that series. Now, it wasn't just him as a scorer, but he was coming around curls and taking advantage of the defense that, the, the, the defenses that were overplaying him. And he was actually finding guys, uh, not dump off passes or or finding guys and picking pops. He was becoming a play, developing into a playmaker. And I want to point that out because everyone marveled at how great Dwayne Wade was in that series. 
uh, here's Dwayne Wade's averages. Uh, I think it was a 25.8 points per game and 4.3 assists in that series. Uh, Rip's average was 23 and a half points per game and six assists. And he shot better from the field than Dwayne Wade did. Uh, not that Dwayne Wade wasn't a better player, but I'm just making a point. Uh, Rip Hamilton kind of matched him statistically in that seven-game series. And sadly, this is the one real bad playoff series that Rip ever had was against the Spurs in the finals. The Spurs, I think, scouted Rip very well. Uh, they kept him from from posting up uh, for the most part. Anytime he got an opportunity, he they they would double him a lot. They took away uh, a lot of his curls that he liked to run. Uh, it was most notable in the, the games in San Antonio, the three games out of the four that they lost, he shot just 18 for 54. Uh, didn't really play well at all. Uh, he does score uh, 15 points in game seven, which is more than anyone else on his team. Uh, but he shoots six for 18 doing it. And it's his efficiency dropped. And that's what, just like he was, I think, uh, one of the biggest reasons they beat Indiana and LA in the finals. I think he was one of the biggest reasons that they didn't beat San Antonio because they weren't getting that reliable 20 plus point efficiency uh, from Rip Hamilton. And that was the end of, you know, the Larry Brown era in Detroit. But for Rip, this, this was actually individually a, a better thing uh, coming on the way flip Saunders. Well, 2006 is going to be, uh, I, I don't know, is it is maybe his best regular season as a player? I, yeah, definitely. I would have to say yeah. he's he's going to become an all-star for the first Absolutely. time this year. He's going to uh, average 20 points a game for, well, he's going to have his 20.1 points per game. Uh, this is going to be the highest that he'll ever average in a season. And then the surprising piece is he has the league high three-point percentage. So, this I think is the the good thing that Flip Saunders brought. I look Flip Saunders. You can say that he didn't coach defense, and there's there was a little nugget of truth in that. Uh, but offensively, he was just a way better mind uh, than Larry Brown or than a lot of coaches. Uh, he was very good at putting his players in position to shoot well, and with Rip Hamilton, that was a dream. Uh, for him because it was just, it was just a perfect fit because Rip was such a good shooter from so many spots on the floor and how flip increased Rip's efficiency was Rip's Rip, Rip's range as a jump shooter was probably about 20, 22 feet max. Uh, problem is the NBA three point line is 23 uh, feet, nine inches. Uh, however, the corners are not, the corners are much shorter. Uh, the corners are well within Rip Hamilton's range. Uh, so Rip Hamilton, he, what he does, he runs a lot of plays for Rip Hamilton to, to shoot from the corners. And Rip Hamilton shoots attempts 123s in 2005-2006. In 78 of them were from the corners. And he shoots over 50% on those corner threes. Now, overall, that gets him to almost 46%. He leads the entire NBA in three-point percentage. Uh, like I said, it's a bit misleading because he didn't shoot from the volume that a lot of guys did. And he was very much a corner specialist. But the fact of the matter is he, he started expanding his, his game a little bit. And Britt becomes a much more efficient, even more efficient than he was before. And I don't think it's any coincidence that 
the three all-star teams that he makes in his career are, are all for Flip Saunders. They are, they are all under Flip Saunders. None before, none after. Uh, be, because Flip really made Rip shine. And it showed in the, the second game of the, <laughs> the freaking season. Uh, it, it was a road game uh, in Boston against the Celtics, and Mark Blonde hits a shot with 0.7 seconds left. It looks like it's going to be the game winner. Uh, Celtics go up one, and the Pistons call a timeout, and they run straight out of Hoosiers. They run the picket fence for Rip Hamilton. Uh, it's run perfect to perfection. He gets free on the baseline, uh, gets the shot off with plenty of time left, and it swishes through for the game to win the game. Uh, Flip absolutely loved to run stuff. Uh, for Rip Hamilton, it was it, it was so much fun uh, watching them exist in that offense, at least for the regular season. You know, the interesting thing about that uh, is I don't. Sometimes you know you say things, and uh, and and in my weird mind, I think this is why we're so alike because we have this recall that's uh, that's weird. You have it for every basketball thing ever, and I have it for half of everything a basketball thing ever. But you you mentioned Mark Blunt. Uh, making that shot and like I think I don't know like six months ago Mark Blunt came up on the podcast for whatever reason and you're like yeah. that's the old... I think I said what was your favorite Mark Blunt moment and you said that <laughs> I don't know why I remember that but... yeah I, I just remember the just the the celebration <laughs> for after he hit that shot I think it was up from the elbow or from the foul line or something uh, it was like off of a broken play and he celebrated like the game was over. And I'm thinking like, you know, there's, there's 0.7 left. There's plenty of time to get a shot off. Right. Uh, yeah. If you get a clean look at it <laughs> and just the, the, the despair in, in poor Tommy Heinsohn's, it was the, the weakest uh, energy you've ever seen on a game winning basket. <laughs> he just couldn't talk for like five seconds. All right. So, yeah, how the rest of that season goes, as I said, Rip Rip Hamilton has a career season. He makes his first All-Star game. He parlays that into the playoffs. He scores a career-high 40 points uh, in, in eliminating the Bucks in Game 5. Career-high uh, playoff points. Yeah, career-high right. playoff points. Um, yeah, they go on uh, against the Cavs. They have a dogfight. They win in seven games. Rip is their top guy for that. He averages – uh, just about 20 points there. And then in the conference finals, it's a very different story than the year before. Uh, the, the Heat are, are definitely a better team than they were the year before. They're a little bit more focused, a lot better defensively. And Rip does get his 21 points a game, but it's on way lower efficiency. He tries to make up for it in the, the final game of the series. He does score 33 points, uh, but that's actually over 40% of the total. He was the only one that showed up for that game. Uh, Billups had one of the worst games of his life. Uh, ben Wallace was, you know, arguing with Flip Saunders on the bench over his, over his not being in the game. And Flip's trying to tell him, look, we, we, we can't score. I, I need McDyson there for, for the offense. And he's just not hearing it. And that was the last game Ben, ben Wallace had played. Well, until he came back uh, before he left for Chicago and amidst all that chaos rip hamilton played very well he's again he scored 33 points but the whole team scored 78 so it just wasn't nearly enough and you know that the pistons 64 win season just kind of ends in the fud uh but you know we haven't 
sir, we, we've seen the last of Ben Wallace uh, for this episode, but certainly not the last of, of Rip Hamilton, who has more good, great things coming. Well, 2007 is going to come up. He's going to make another all-star game, uh, and he's going to score the most points uh, in a regular season game in his entire career against the uh, New York Knicks in a game that the Pistons actually lost, but he does score 51 points in that game. Uh, you got any memory of that one? Yeah, I remember hating every second of it uh, <laughs> because that was one of the few times where that team just absolutely did not have it on defense. They had no energy in that game. Um, Eddie Curry, more than Rip Hamilton's 51, is, is the fact that Eddie Curry scored like 33. It, it was – Stephon Marbury scored 40. Jamal Crawford had 30-something. It was just everybody that played for the Knicks uh, had, had easy, easy baskets. I was so disgusted by that game, even though I, I thought Rip was phenomenal. I, I, I thought that was the best game I'd ever seen him play in, in the regular season. It was just – it's such a miserable game to watch, and I have no desire to ever watch it again, even though I have it in my vault. I just don't, don't want to see it. it, it it's just – I remember – it was such a painful game to watch at the time because it was just the antithesis of everything I had, I had come to know and love about Pistons basketball, the toughness, the defense, none of it was there. If Rip hadn't scored 51 points, they would have lost to that bad Knicks team by like 30. Uh, the Knicks were just carving them up on every possession. Yeah. This game ended 151, 145 uh, Knicks win. Like this is a horrible uh, triple overtime. Like, uh, I mean, it's fun if you like scoring, you know, but th that Knicks team was not very good and probably shouldn't have been competing in this game at all, really. Yeah, and, and look, this happens to to even the best NBA teams where, you know, it's a late December, early January game, and you're in the dog days of, of the season where, you know, the newness is worn off, but you're nowhere near the end, so you're just trying to get through games and, and you just don't have it sometimes, you know, for any given night. And then that motivates you to play better going forward. But they just needed this this uh, very bad loss, I think, uh, to get to get them going, or at least remind them that they need to play hard every night. And look, th that season did not go very well anyway. Prior to them signing Chris Weber, who turned their entire season around, uh, but that was probably the low point for me in that season. Uh, but Rip Hamilton, nonetheless. Uh, about the same as the year before. Uh, he doesn't get as many uh, corner threes as the year before. I think he's better scouted. Uh, but, yeah, he's still an all-star. Uh, second year in a row, 20 points a game. Uh, now the Pistons go on and they, they lose to the Cavs in the conference finals. Uh, but Rip Hamilton is, you know, he's their leading scorer in games five and six. Uh, 26 points in game five, 29 in game six. But the problem is, once again, Chauncey Billups kind of abandons the team when they need him the most, uh, which is really the contrast between Rip and Chauncey, is that Chauncey's highs were way better than Rip's ever were. and But Chauncey's lows were just so much worse than, than Rip at his worst. Uh, Rip was just that guy that was consistently there for you all of the time. And... You know, sometimes when when other guys showed up, uh, he was a key part in a, in a victory. But when other guys didn't, it was hard for him to carry the load. So uh, we we go into Rip's final season with Flip Saunders, his final All Star season, 
2008. Uh, Chris Weber's not there anymore, but neither is Nazi Muhammad. We've moved uh, McDyess in as a full-time starter. We've gotten a, a, a better bench. Uh, Theo Ratliff is back. Uh, I don't even know why I mentioned that name, but Jarvis Hayes. It, it's the first time in the, in the, since 2004 that the Pistons have really had a competent bench. So it, it allows, it does allow the starters to get a little bit more rest. And Rip Hamilton certainly benefits from that. Uh, he, he has a bounce back season. He doesn't score. Like, that's the interesting thing. His, his scoring average drops to about 17.3. But if you look at his shooting, his, his effective field goal percentage is a career high. He's shooting 48% from the field, 44% from three. Uh, and in the playoffs, once again, uh, he's got, he's a little bit more rested. He's got fresher legs. He, he tortures the Sixers for the third time, averages 20 points a game, uh, shoots almost 50% from the floor. Uh, he tortures the Orlando Magic once again. Uh, with the series is, you know, they're up two games to one. Uh, he drops 32 in game four in Orlando to put them up 3-1. And then he scores 31 points in game six to eliminate the Magic. And this is without Billups on the floor because Billups was hurt in that series as well. And you get to what I think is uh, one of the underrated duels uh, in playoff history was his conference finals with his UConn mentor, Ray Allen, which I thought was really cool. Even though that you know the Pistons lost that series – uh, Rip Hamilton was by far the best player for the Pistons. Wasn't even close. Averaged 22 points a game. Uh, the aforementioned duel I talked about in game five with the series tied at two. Uh, Rip scores 16 points in the second half. The problem is Ray Allen scores 21. He has a little bit more help around him. Uh, a very, very, very hotly contested game that really decided the series because I think whoever won that game would have gone to the finals and ultimately won the championship. Uh, but Ultimately, it's not enough, even though Rip Hamilton at this point is in the prime of his career, all-star status, one of the efficient scorers in the league. Uh, there's so many things that help you win, uh, developing extremely well as an assist guy, as a playmaker. None of it really matters. Uh, Joe Dumars, after the season, decides to move on from Flip Saunders and move on from Chauncey Billups, and we get into the really ugly period. Uh, of Rip Hamilton's career where he's kind of stuck on a team that's in a rebuild by choice. And uh, he's at the point in his career where he really should be on a rebuilding team. Yeah. Well, you know, he, he hits his thirties right after this season, 2009 turns 30 uh, injuries start to happen. You know, he goes, he's played 67 games in 2009, 46 in uh, 2010 and then 55 and 2011. So there's a lot of injury issues. Points are going down. Starts are going down. Uh, and, yeah. And that, and that's the, I think the thing that really starts to get under Rip's skin is that the, the disrespect that he felt uh, after flip, after they tore the team apart, Michael Curry takes over in the 2009 season. And obviously they've traded Billups for Allen Iverson. So, you know, he's, he, he needs to get his time, which of course, you know, Rip understood that. Rip understood that Allen Iverson was going needed to start because he's Allen freaking Iverson, uh, despite what he was at that point in his career. Uh, the problem was there was also another guy in the a guard on the team by the name of Rodney Stuckey, who was 
know, that was Joe's big project. That was his big chance to redeem himself for, for blowing the Darko Milicic pick. And it doesn't really work out that way. Um, Michael Curry, not really understanding locker room dynamics. I don't know how he didn't, unless he was just ordered to do this, but he tells Rip Hamilton that he needs to start coming off the bench, uh, behind Rodney Stuckey. <laughs> and it was just either that, or he was too afraid to tell Allen Iverson to do it. I don't know, but you know, those 16 non-starts for, for Rip during the 09 season, those were not his choice. They weren't because he, he wasn't good enough to start. It was because uh, they were trying to force Rodney Stuckey into the starting lineup and neither Rip Hamilton nor Allen Iverson, you know, that was an insult to both of them because he wasn't as good as either one of them at that point in his career. And so the first thing they, that Curry tries was asking Rip to come off the bench and that pissed Rip off, even though he did it and he was good at it. Uh, and then he, he re reversed course and then tells Allen Iverson to come off the bench and Allen Iverson basically quits on the team. So at least Curry had the right idea the first time of who to pick because Rip definitely handled it better. Uh, but we go into the twilight of, of Rip's career, which is Michael Curry last one season as Pistons coach, he gets fired. Uh, Joe going back to the well decides to bring in a guy named John Huster, who was, uh, one of Larry Brown's assistant on the 04 uh, championship team. And he was a lot of, he was the guy that was really diagramming a lot of Rip's plays, a lot of the offensive plays on that, for that team that season. So I think he thought that it would be more of a, a mesh. Uh, but in between that, we have in the, in the off season of 2009, you know, Bill Davidson sadly passing away. And that kind of puts a freeze on the team's assets and one of the trades that Joe reportedly had lined up was a trade of Rip Hamilton to Utah for Carlos Boozer, which would have balanced out the team because he was bringing in Ben Gordon, uh, and, who was, and Ben Gordon is a shooting guard. He can't play any other position, and he gave Ben Gordon all this money coming from Chicago. So I think that was the idea that Joe had. And we'll get into this when we do the Joe Dumars GM episode, but it just, everything gets frozen. Things don't work out. So now the team is stuck with two starting shooting guards once again. And, you know, they're both being paid a lot of money with Rip and, and Ben Gordon. And it just, it turns into a disaster. And John Huster, who comes in as a coach, uh, kind of brings in the swagger that, you know, he was part of the 04 championship team when, you know, the, <laughs> Rip Hamilton and Tayshawn Prince, the other veterans from that team, didn't love him like that. I'll put it that way. And Ben Wallace is back, and no, no one gave him credit for that. Uh, it was like Matt Patricia coming in. Like, if I could compare him to any other coach in Detroit history, it'd be Matt Patricia, because it was a it was a guy that was an assistant on a previous championship team coming coming in as with a promotion as the head guy. Like, you know, you're going to respect me. And it was worse in this case because those were guys that played for him in 04 and they they knew he was kind of an abrasive character and he wasn't the reason that they were uh, that they won the championship so it, it starts off this really rocky toxic relationship with he and, and the veterans uh, most notably rip hamilton and they kind of felt disrespected and the, the team is absolutely terrible and it comes to a head uh, at one point 
John Kuster gets ejected after a loss in Philadelphia. And you can see on the camera, uh, like the cameras peer toward the bench and the God, you know, there are guys laughing at him as, it, as he's being led out of the arena. Like there's absolute disdain uh, for John Kuster on that team. And this, this gets followed up with uh, Rip Hamilton. Well, a number of guys, actually, they're, they're in, they're getting ready for a shoot around before a game in Utah or, or against Utah. And about half the team doesn't show up for shoot around, just didn't show up. Now, one or two guys not showing up, that's something that happens uh, for, for any number of reasons. But for the half, for seven different players to do it, that's intentional. And Rip Hamilton being Houston's biggest critic, he didn't show up and he was. A, the, the blame for that quote-unquote mutiny was, lame, was laid at his feet. And he, among uh, the rest of the players, were suspended. And I think the worst thing is the Pistons went out and won that game. They beat the Utah Jazz with like seven guys or eight guys. Uh, and that kind of showed just how toxic things had become, that simply not having guys around made the team better. And for, for Rip Hamilton, of all people, you know, a, a guy that – was the all-time leading score, uh, playoff score in Pistons history uh, to do that. Oof. And, yeah, it, it was just – and from that point out, look, they, they did a big PR thing where they they came out of a, a Joe Dumars' office and, and John Kuster was, was feeding rip jump shots in practice. But it, it was all – you know, it was all PR fluff. Like everybody knew at that point that Rip Hamilton had no desire to play for the Pistons anymore. And John Kuster was kind of dead man walking as coach. And it, it comes to a point how it ends is the Pistons have to buy out Rip Hamilton because they can't have him around anymore, which again, I thought, I thought it was among all the, the Pistons legends that they've ever had. I thought it was the saddest way for that. Any of them ever gone out. Uh, because it was such a negative way, and it, it really didn't need to be that way. It was just a a, a result of a whole lot of uh, mismanagement uh, and, and a, a little bit of immaturity on Rip's part. Yeah, you know, I think – I I don't know. I feel maybe every player in every sport kind of has that one moment in their career where they probably go about things the wrong way. Uh, yeah. it's, some are just bigger than others and this and this case this was a pretty big one and um yeah he does get bought out but uh the chicago bulls are going to come calling so he's not going to be a free agent for very long uh he, he winds up going to the bulls um uh, plays two seasons there 28 games in two in, in 2012 and and 50 in uh, 2013 um nothing really uh remarkable about either of those seasons other than uh, one one game he had against the Bucks, where uh, in in early season uh, he put up thirty points against the Bucks in a ninety three ninety two loss. I, I you know that's the only really the only thing I can remember about Rip's Chicago time. Yeah, yeah, for Rip, who, a guy who was notorious around the league for being the best conditioned player in the whole league, a guy that was a fitness nut. Uh, for for him to break down physically so quickly you know, after he hit 30 was, was kind of shocking because everyone saw him as the heir apparent to Reggie Miller. Reggie Miller was a, a legit starter in the NBA until he was 40. Uh, 
for whatever reason, as soon as Rip got to Chicago and everyone thought it was a great fit on paper because you had him and you had prime Derrick Rose uh, and you had ripped to space the floor. It was, it looked like that could be a championship uh, type co uh, combination in the backcourt. And it just never materialized because Rip couldn't stay healthy. I mean, ultimately Derrick Rose couldn't stay healthy either, but it was Rip never even had a chance. Uh, you never even really saw what that duo could do. Uh, together, especially in the playoffs, because Rip was never able to stay on the court. I, I don't understand how that changed from his Pistons years, but I, I guess looking back on it, you could see towards the end he was kind of losing a step even in Detroit. Yeah, well, he's going to retire as a Chicago Bull. Uh, obviously, the Pistons have retired his jersey, as yeah. they, as they 100% should have done. Well-deserved. Uh, and he's he's back in the good graces of uh pistons i mean i don't think he was ever really i never had a problem with what he did i mean it was wrong but it, i was i was not going to take john Custer's side on 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 that because i wanted him gone just like everybody else did i i think there's a way to go about doing things like i i remember being very very upset at rip hamilton at the time not because I disagreed with him wanting John Kuster gone. Like you said, do a very good job as Pistons coach over, over his tenure. But it was the fact that how he went about doing it was kind of, he just, you know, napalmed his entire, the end of his Pistons career. The way that he did it ensured that he couldn't be a Piston any longer, that he was not going to be able to retire a Piston, which is what I think everyone wanted uh, for Rip Hamilton. And he, he kind of, basically just burned that burned everything to the ground. I, I really, really was disappointed and be, because I knew that that's how it would end, that it would be either him getting traded or him getting bought out. And it, that, that would be kind of a embarrassing way to, to end uh, one of the great careers in Pistons history. But looking back on it, yeah, I, I'm glad that the defenses are mended and his problem was really with John Kuster and, and nobody else. But I, I just w really wish uh, his career would have ended in Detroit as opposed to Chicago. I know that's selfish of me, but I, I would have, I would have really. And look, I, I just got done saying that the, Joe tried to trade him for Carlos Boozer. Like this is not me making this up. Like this is something that was was in the works until you know he was told no, you can't do this. So it, it's not like they didn't. Their intention was for him to finish his career in Detroit anyway. Well, uh, you know, just, go ahead. Well, I was going to just say, uh, you know, you brought up the Carlos Boozer trade, and there was one thing I wanted to bring up before we wrapped up uh, on Rip. Uh, there was another trade that uh, you might remember that was highly, highly uh, discussed and and still highly discussed to this day in two thousand seven. Joe uh, had a deal in place to send Rip Hamilton, Tayshawn yeah. Prince, Amir Johnson, and a first-round pick to the Lakers Kobe. for Kobe. What if that would have happened? Not from a Pistons uh, side of you, because I know, I mean, geez, to have Kobe Bryant, it's my favorite player of all right. time. It would have been incredible. But I wonder how Rip and Tayshawn would have been in L.A. at that time. The, the, this is a team that would contend for a championship the very next year. Actually, that year they, I think they went to the finals in 2007. Did they not? Or no, that was uh, Spurs and, and Cavs. So 2008, 
Yeah, this was before that the, the Lakers got the um this is before the Lakers bailed themselves out. Or I should say Memphis bailed the Lakers out by giving them Bogus all for for trinkets. Yes. This was at the point when the Lakers were at their point of absolute desperation where uh, they say we're, we're never going to be bad enough to bottom out with Kobe, but as long as we have Kobe, we're never going to be, you know, good enough, and we're, we're we have no flexibility. So, yeah, they, they were. That was the one time they were entertaining. And the thing was, the the other side of that deal was they had another deal lined up with the Bulls after the Pistons, uh, where they were going to trade Kobe for I think all of their younger players, uh, Ben Gordon. Lou Alding, uh, Kirk Heinrich. Uh, but the Bulls actually said no. The Bulls actually had turned – you can look this up. The Bulls turned down Kobe Bryant for, like, a collection of guys that had never made an all-star team because they, 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 they valued their own draft picks so much more than they valued Kobe Bryant. Oh, my God. Uh, yeah. Was, those, those guys yeah. all worked it. I feel like Lou Alding has messed up John, a lot of trades. In, in... John, John Paxson should never be allowed to touch an NBA. <laughs> for an office again it was the worst dec- declined trade offer in nba history i think so if the trade would have went through this is i think kobe would have i think kobe would have approved going to chicago i don't think he would have approved going to detroit i think the pistons would win the championship and in, in, i think they beat the Cavs and they win the championship that year i really do uh i'm sorry but um uh, anyways if if rip goes to la this is who he's with uh, Kwame Brown, Andrew Bynum, uh, Jordan Farmar, Lamar Odom. Well, he uh, also would have had Chauncey and Tayshawn Prince on his team, right? What's that? No, uh, apparently, according to the this article by Bleacher Report, it was just Rip, uh, Tayshawn, Amir Johnson, okay. and a first-round pick. I could have sworn. You know, Matt, maybe I'm wrong. I, I could be wrong. That was just would have been like, interesting. Yeah, but he's, he would have had Tayshawn out. Least. Yeah, you would have had Tayshawn, but you know the the uh the Paul Gasol trade, which happens what next year, that's not yeah. happening anymore. Right. Uh, so who knows who knows what that would have been like, but that would have been interesting uh for both sides of the, the fence. But uh now we get to our, our final two questions that we always ask. Uh could Rip play today? And I think it's a resounding yes, because he basically hey. just did. Yeah, and he would be better today because the, the the fact that the middle of the floor is so wide open now because everyone guards the rim and they guard the three-point line, and they kind of do so at the expense of the mid-range shot. So Rip Hamilton would have all of that space all to himself. I, I think he would be even more efficient of a, of a player now than he was in his playing days when uh, efficiency shooting the ball was hard to come by. Well, this three-point shooting too would have been spectacular today. I mean, because that's 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 what half the game is now is yeah. just guys chucking up threes. Um, well, I mean, like I said, his range really didn't extend. Like his range extended to the corners, so I don't think that would have changed. He was a corner three specialist, uh, and that would have been scouted, I think, a little bit better because every team has a corner three specialist today. So it would have been interesting to see. Would he shoot more of them, or would he? Would that be scouted better? I don't know. Then the, uh, you know, then the there's the other question is what's what's his legacy? And I think you you said it quite a few times. I mean, he's the the best Pistons uh, playoff scorer in franchise history. 
And I, and I remember counting that down when nobody in the press was. I kind of felt like I was looking at fake numbers or something because I'm like, Rip Hamilton's getting really close here. And he's like doing this game by game with Isaiah Thomas's uh, uh, pace that he was on. And he actually broke the record in one, few, one fewer game uh, than Isaiah Thomas did. Which I thought was important uh, uh, for him to set himself apart was to break Isaiah's record and do it in fewer fewer games. Well, that is going to do it for the Richard Rip Hamilton episode. This was fun. Uh, the The poll that we put up got got a ton of votes. Uh, I'm sorry, uh, Keith Dave DeBusher got two percent of the vote. <laughs> That's fine. I value all all of those two percenters. I value each and every one of your opinions. I I think that that was you. That was mostly just you. Setting. I did not vote in it. No, I I, oh, I, okay. I endeavor to be impartial. I actually did not vote in the poll, so I have no idea who's winning the poll until it finalized. No, well, you and I are not the same because I definitely voted in the poll. <laughs> I voted for Allen Iverson because uh, I'm going to get this episode one of these days. It's going to happen. <laughs> Look, that that is actually. Encourage me. We will be doing a mailbag episode at some point, either Ooh. late this month or early next month. Yes, I yes, I insist on it. Uh, if we are going, if we have that uh, type of interaction and we're going to get some responses, I I am going to personally see to it that we get a mailbag episode done, so you guys can send in your questions and we can that, answer them. That is a phenomenal idea. Yes, I can't wait to do that, and we'll uh, we'll get all that set up on our Twitter and. Uh, uh, that's another another great uh, Spotify for podcasters sponsor of the show. Uh, that's another great function that they have on there is that they could put a Q&A thing on there. So people will send us questions and we can actually answer questions right from there. So that's that's perfect. Uh, but that'll do it for today's episode. We will see you guys next week at our regular time. No, no Lions game in the middle of the week next week. We'll see you next week at our regular time. We will be covering the 2014 NBA draft and we're going to find out which player LeBron James is going to have immediately traded. We'll see you guys then.